Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff. I am one of the three co-hosts of this podcast. The other two are Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky. They're with me right now. Hey. Special episode. Special on so many levels. Evan, who uh, who was your guest? The specialist. Uh, one reason it's special is that my guest this week is Aaron Lammer. Aaron Lammer, as previously mentioned, is a co-host of this show. But that's not what we talked about for the most part. He, a couple of years ago, Aaron got really interested in one particular crazy story. He decided to stop just interviewing journalists about their nonfiction stories and go and report one himself. The result is Exit Scam, an eight-part podcast, which is generally about the mysterious death of a Canadian crypto kingpin named Gerald Cotton. All eight episodes are out now, so... It's on you if it gets spoiled a little bit. We tried not to spoil it, but we talked all about the show, how he reported it. We talked about how he weeded through a nest of crazy lies for this story. And we talked a little bit about his other lives, including as a band member of Francis and the Lights. And the other reason this is really special is that uh, I hadn't interviewed anyone in person in 18 months. And Aaron, you were my first. Nor had I, and I feel like you and I had not been in the same room with each other for like closer to two years. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I haven't been in the same room with anyone who I is not in my family that I live with uh, in about two years. So it was really great to do these in person. Yeah, uh, for people who don't uh, know, I, I'm actually not a journalist, uh, contrary to uh, most people who listen to this show's assumption. This is really the first thing I've ever done. And thanks to, to both of you who are really supportive of uh, me doing it the whole time. Well, I, I, for one, am really looking forward to this interview. I haven't heard it yet, and I'm hoping that Evan just cracked you wide open. Uh, he did his best, <laughs> and uh, I did my best to not become uncomfortable and refuse to talk about myself, probably about 50% uh, on that front. Aaron, if you wanted to um, fully communicate yourself, 100%, all in, what would be the medium you'd choose? Email newsletter. It's the most future-proof medium, and the most future-proof service is MailChimp. They worked with all of the services 
that were around when we started this show 10 years ago, and they still work with them now, all the new stuff that's replaced it. If you're starting an email newsletter, you should be in it for the long haul because you might end up like us doing something for 10 years unexpectedly. And MailChimp is the service for that. They make it easy and they're going to be around. So thanks to MailChimp. And now here's one of my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff, with the other one, Aaron Lammer. Aaron, welcome to your own podcast, the Long Form Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for coming out. This is my first uh, in-person interview since the pandemic. I would say that it's mine as well. And we're sitting like kind of uncomfortably close to each other <laughs> due to the fact that I didn't have very long cord for the second microphone. So back in back in the swing, there's not even a table between us. It captures why why I wanted to do this in a way because it wasn't just to talk to you about exit scam, but also to get a chance to see you in person, which I haven't seen you in 18 months. I think probably longer. I was like an early, I was an early pandemic abandoner <laughs> of New York City. So I've been out here for a while. Even pre-pandemic, you you had already I had abandoned socializing early. Yes. Yes. So we're out here in your audio cave where uh you just produce podcast after podcast, including our own. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about Exit Scam, which I of course I'm not gonna pretend like I don't know a lot about both from having listened to it, but also from having talked to you about it for two years, yeah, almost. I want to start at the beginning of when you found out about it as a way into talking about what it is and why you did it. So do you remember learning about the story that drives it? Yeah, I actually literally remember like the first moment I read a headline about Quadriga, um, which is this Bitcoin exchange in Canada that collapsed after the founder died in India on his honeymoon. And at the time, I was hosting Coin Talk, which was a show about crypto with previous long-form podcast guest, Jay Kang. And, you know, I was kind of trawling every week for material. You know, like, this is a weekly show, so you got to, like... You guys you gotta, were doing, like, an hour a week Yeah, or we're more? doing, like, yeah, like, 60 to 90 minutes a week. And yeah. I would say it was, like, 50% about fraud. So... I was loving this stuff when it came in, and it was coming in fast and furious. So I didn't know that this story would really necessarily have more legs. I and mean, we were we were coming across a lot of pretty incredible stories. I think there was a guy who had been convicted of financial crimes and then came back under a new identity just with a large beard. <laughs> so that was probably... That was probably my favorite story up until then. And then we heard about this Quadriga story, and... Unlike some of the other crypto crimes and frauds, which were brazen and sometimes hilarious, this one felt like it had like more dimensions as a story. Like uh -huh. it could actually go somewhere, not uh -huh. just like, oh, he shaved off his beard. It's that same guy. <laughs> Don't let him sell fake Bloomberg terminals. That guy was selling like vaporware Bloomberg terminals for crypto, the guy with the fake beard. Mm. So I guess that story kind of had legs too. That I don't know. Maybe, like maybe I should return to that story. But <laughs> Um, you know, the Quadriga story had a lot of mysteries that were still active with it. Um, there was a lot of stuff that just didn't make sense. And then within the first few months after it came out, even more stuff came out that I would say made it even more mysterious and kind of undermined, actually, some of the initial assumptions we had about the story. You know, early on, the story was that this guy had died in India 
he was the only person who had the passwords to these cold storage cryptocurrency wallets that had $200 million that belonged to his customers in it. The customers who were buying cryptocurrency to trade it in Canada. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people just leave their crypto on the exchange after they buy it. So Mm -hmm. at any given moment, there is often quite a bit of money just sitting there on exchanges. And so basically the, the initial story with Quadriga was that that money had been locked up with a password that only one person, the founder, had. And therefore, if no one could find his password, those people were going to lose a couple hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. Pretty quickly, the actual story turned out to be a lot more complicated than that. The first break being really, and I, I'm not spoiling too much, this is the first episode of Exit Scam, that when the company declared creditor protection, which is kind of like bankruptcy, forensic accountants went and looked into the wallets there was actually no money in the wallets. And furthermore, the wallets had been cleaned out six months before this guy's honeymoon. Uh So now there were like a lot of unanswered questions about (laughs) what had been going on. So, you know, all of that stuff felt like a good starting point. And it felt like an interesting story to do just because we didn't really know where it was going early on. It could have gone a lot of different directions from – the CEO, Gerald Cotton, getting caught on a beach sipping a Mai Tai to someone coming out with definitive proof that he had not faked his death and was really dead. The money could have been found. It seemed like there was a lot of like places the story could go while we were working on a podcast about it. Yeah. And before you even were actually doing a podcast about it. So you're 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 doing coin talk. Yep. You're just chatting about it with Jay Kang. But you were also, if I recall at the time, you were already deep into these Reddit threads about what's going on here and even former customers of the exchange trying to figure out what's happening on their own. Before you've decided I'm going to go tell the story myself, why were you so invested in knowing what happened? I mean, this is basically just what I waste a lot of my – I mean, I already (laughs) waste a lot of my time – on threads about crypto. So that was not a change in behavior. The only real change in behavior was uh, going from lots of different stories and following a lot of different crypto narratives to getting kind of obsessed with this one. And really, like I don't actually totally remember when we started working on it as a podcast. For a while, I was just really curious about it and was following a lot of this stuff. Probably a contributing factor was I was so interested in the case that I kind of wanted to be able to contact some of these internet detectives who were uncovering a lot of stuff about the case. And the podcast almost felt like a pretext to get on the phone with them. I I remember the first few times that we taped interviews with people, I wasn't totally clear that we were ever going to use those interviews or like, it wasn't like, okay, like, you know, when are we going to publish this? It was more like kind of exploratory interviews because at that point there also just wasn't really enough to tell a whole story. Like I, 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 it wasn't like a beginning, middle and end. We didn't even really have the middle of the story early on, you know? So uh, in the end it, it turned out to be really lucky that we did some of those interviews because I was able to get some impressions of people uh, impressions that people who were close to the case had before some of the revelations came out. Uh-huh. And it turned out some of those people were very prescient and were able to sort of call what really happened with very little information. One of the people involved right away, he said he didn't know anything about it other than, you know, he had been involved in the search for Gerald Cotton's password, but he went, this guy struck me as a Bernie Madoff, like right away. 
like right away I was suspicious of a, a Ponzi type fraud. And you, so at this time, you had not engaged in any like previous journalistic activity. This is a big revelation for long form podcast <laughs> listeners. I am not actually a journalist. I've never been a journalist. I've never actually really even had a huge urge to want to to do journalism. I would say like these kind of talk shows are a little bit closer and, and the way that we approached like coin talk, I did another show called stoner that was interviews with people who enjoyed marijuana, who were creative people. That's a little bit closer to yeah. how I would generally engage with something. I think I, I think I'm interested in conversations and interviews and ideas, but I'm not, I would certainly never be like a city beat reporter going to town hall meetings. That, that nothing like that has ever seemed even vaguely appealing to me. No, no knock on it, like at all. Like I have a tremendous amount of admiration and respect. It just seems really hard and like a ton of work for a reward that seems diminishing right now. So, well, you always, but you obviously love it because you and Max started Longform.org, in which the entire purpose of it is to recommend great long journalism or like was at the beginning you started this podcast that we are currently speaking on in which you yep. have interviewed hundreds of journalists about what they do so how do you reconcile your clearly very deep interest in this type of work from not previously having done it well i see myself as a consumer of this kind of work so uh -huh. there's many things that i enjoy as a consumer that I'm not necessarily like, I got to go do that myself, you know? Um, that's not my orientation. In fact, the things that I enjoy, I've generally like tried to start shows that are kind of like appreciations for, you know, like, mm -hmm. like I don't think Coin Talk was a show that was like particularly useful if you like wanted to make good investments in <laughs> cryptocurrency. In fact, actually a large <laughs> theme of the show is how bad we were at it. So... I guess I tend to favor sort of experiential, you know, taking someone along with me on, on a journey more so than something like journalism, where I think that there's sort of a, for many people, kind of a higher calling to it, or it has a higher importance in society. And for me, I looked at long form heavily from a user experience level, like the things that I tried to get better at as we were doing it were more along the lines of web and app design and really thinking through how people experienced journalism. You know, certainly you were doing the atavist during the same time period. And it was a time period where people were thinking a lot about how the journalism, you know, got from, from your pen and onto people's screens. And, and there was a lot of innovation during that period, which now all of it seems kind of like not that important. Like, I feel like we figured it out now. It's the, settled. It's yeah, settled the mobile websites are good. They work. It's enjoyable to read on your phone, whatever. But there was a, there was a lot of dust that had to settle before then. So yeah. that was the stuff early on that interested me more so than like, oh, I want to go out and, and do journalism. And so when you started doing these initial interviews, did you adopt the persona of like, I'm now doing reporting? Did you think of it as something else or did you reflect on it in that way? I mean, early on, my strong feeling about this case was that it was fascinating. There was actually tons of information already available, but mm -hmm. it wasn't all put together in a way that people could comprehend. So I think my initial goal was to take all of this disparate stuff that was on Reddit forums. There was a very active Telegram group for people who lost money on Quadriga that members, former employees of Quadriga also were appearing in. 
So early on, I was like, I got to capture this stuff, right? Like I got to, because Telegram is like constantly erasing itself. You know, you got to, I was like, I got to get this stuff down before it disappears. So the initial task was to take all of this different information that was online and tell it as a story, put it together in a way that an average person who wasn't really deep in Bitcoin could understand. Once we had done that, I realized that there was like seven mysteries that had a solution and that there was three that were like glaringly unsolved. And I think the last year we were working on the show was really about addressing those like lingering mysteries, which were the biggest mysteries. You know, I found that a lot of times when you talk to people about the case, they were very familiar with some of the information and not familiar with other of the information. I would say, Maybe I sort of wish that conspiracy theory was true, but have you looked at this, you know? And your own perceptions of what happened to Gerald Cotton, how did they change over time? I mean, one thing that changed was early on, I felt like I had to solve the mystery. The central mystery. The central mystery. Was I had he dead? To, yeah. I mean, look, I I spent most of the time just pretty sure that he was alive. I, I just, my gut said this just doesn't add up. Like the solution to this puzzle has to be that he faked his death. And towards the end, I started taking more seriously that he might actually be dead based on some information and based on the understanding that him actually being dead did not negate most of the mysteries I started with. Mm -hmm. In fact, he was a person who had been living a lie for many years. So the mysteries that he created through his lies were there, whether he died a natural death or faked his death. He had actually created a tremendous amount of misdirection. So I realized that some of the things early on where I went, this doesn't add up, this guy faked his death. Maybe this doesn't add up, this guy was in the middle of a three-year Ponzi scheme that was culminating at this period. There were actually different explanations for some of the things that just seemed incredibly fishy early in the story. You know, Gerald Cotton, the main figure here, had a whole history of committing previous scams and Ponzi schemes. And and then you have that mixed with this sort of world of Reddit where people are detectives chasing it down. And you have the customers who have lost tons of money and are mad. They have conspiracy theories. How did you go about trying to pull out what was real amidst a situation in which it's basically like a constellation of anger and lies and conspiracy theories. I mean, we really tried to hunt down every fact in the case. Where does that come from? Can we see the source thing that it's derived from? And a lot of them pretty quickly fell apart, you know, once you applied any real pressure to them. A lot of the early Reddit conspiracies were based on not lies, but like just kind of games of telephone. But a lot of things did endure and continue to be mysteries. And so the way we approached this case was trying to solve what happened to this guy and what happened to this missing fortune. And the missing fortune was actually fairly trackable because of the nature of the blockchain. We could actually see where a lot of this money had moved and people had documented pretty extensively what became of the money that Gerald Cotton embezzled out of Quadriga. When we looked at what happened to him as a person, there's almost no information, right? We know that he went to India, and we know that a body came back from India and was buried in Halifax. 
that's about all we know. He hasn't been cited anywhere. And we also haven't definitively proven that he was buried in that coffin. We basically had to investigate two different scenarios. We tried to prove that he was dead and to prove that he was alive. Proving that he was dead involved talking to a lot of authorities in Canada and saying, if you get a Western tourist who's being flown back from India, do you fingerprint? Do you open the coffin? Who checks? What airport? What flight was this body on? Could there have been video that proved any of this stuff? We pushed as hard as we could to follow the entire sort of um, history of the coffin from where it was sealed in India to when it was buried in Halifax. And that was our, can we prove that he's really dead? Mm -hmm. I remember when you when you found out that they don't check bodies coming back from <laughs> you sent me a message saying, you won't believe this, but no one checks. Yeah, you I can mean, bring anybody back you want. The weird thing about a lot of this stuff is that early on, it wasn't known that there was a crime that had taken place. Now, that seems crazy to not check the body, but if you were a tourist in India and a family member suffered an accidental death and you're just normal people, well, it makes sense that they don't make you like open the casket and fingerproof the person at the airport because mm -hmm. there's no suspicion of a crime. There's no presumption that because someone died in another country, it's inherently suspicious. In trying to do the same thing with the Jerry is alive hypothesis, it was a lot harder because we had nothing to go on. So in that case, we went back into his past and started looking at like what really happened in his life. Is this the kind of person who could have faked his death? Mm -hmm. Is there evidence that suggested that he had the skills and the inclination towards this? And the answer there was overwhelmingly yes. This is someone who had been running Ponzi schemes since he was 15 years old, who had experience ripping people off and then making excuses and then disappearing. And in fact, had a, a number of pretty unique talents that would have been useful if you were trying to evade arrest. Being able to fly small aircraft, which allows you to go through private airports, which means you're never really going through custom. He uh, had deep knowledge of tour and various ways to hide where you are on the internet. And most importantly, he really knew how to move money around the world in an undetectable way. And that's the hardest part of faking your death and starting a new life. Yeah. It's, I need a new identity in a new country, and I need a bank account, and it's already got to already have money in it. If you're doing that kind of stuff after you fake your death, that's how you're going to get caught. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly 
The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. You know that I love a good fake death story. It's one of my favorites. You're and a pioneer in death faking. <laughs> I've, I've been interested in death identity chain for a decade and a half at least. Yeah. Um, and you spoke to my favorite private investigator, Stephen Rombaum, fan favorite of listeners to the show. Oh, by the way, incre- I mean he's just an incredible talker. But I'm interested in the tension of when I was just looking at the story from the outside. It feels like there's a pull of well, this is a better story if he faked his death. Like, how did you resist the pull of, let's just let's just go in that direction and push that narrative because that seems like the more attractive story. If this guy went to India and he just died of natural causes, it's not as good a story. I mean, a story like this is a puzzle that all the pieces have to fit together. So while I found out that Gerald Cotton was a 15-year-old Ponzi, okay, that that really looks like he faked his death. I mean, just right off the bat. But then we also looked at it and said, well, his wife was with him in India when he died. It seems like it would be very difficult for him to have fooled his wife into thinking he had died when he had not. And that would mean that his wife had to have been in on it. This is something actually that Stephen Rombaum sort of told me. He was like, look, when there's a couple who get into this stuff, mo- mostly it- it's a joint venture. It's usually both people are in on it, especially in a situation like this where she said, I was with him in the hospital when he died, right? right? The switcheroo. I did look into the switcheroo possibilities where like she took a bathroom break and they like switched the body or something. I can't totally rule it out, but it seemed to me like – Probably either he really died and she was telling the truth, or if he faked his death, she had had some involvement in it. And when I looked at some real facts about what had happened to her after he died, they didn't totally add up in the same way that him being a Ponzi schemer added up. She had had all of her stuff seized. So 
her experiences made me question whether that plan even made sense or even what the plan was. If they had conspired to fake his death, you know, what was supposed to happen to her, she was basically being like left out to hang and dry, you know? So I guess I would say, you know, towards that being the better story, I kind of wanted to figure out a solution in my mind that encompassed all of the different data points. Mm -hmm. She's a real live living person. So we actually had more data points about her than we have about him. Double extra spoiler alert. She's writing a book right now, (laughs) right? It's in the last episode. Tell tell all book. Okay. So I had to think, well, that means that if she helped him fake his death, she's writing a book that is, is saying the opposite. You know, that's a, that's a high hubris occupation. Why would you do that? That doesn't really make sense. So I, I tried to show both sides of that. And honestly, like I still am up at night sometimes. I, I'm not confident that I know what really happened. In my mind, none of the explanations totally add up. There's at least one glaring contradiction in every explanation I've ever uh, had for, for what happened. And I, I hope that in my lifetime, I get to find out what really happened, but probably not this year. I have to say, if it turns out that he's actually faked his death, then the way you're going to find out is going to be so dramatic, it's going to blow your mind, I would assume. I mean, I have also thought about the fact that like this story is like pretty well-known, but not that well-known, that like if he is alive, he's probably following all of the media. He's probably listened to the show. So I... I tried to keep in my mind the, at all times that the person this show is about is probably also the audience for the show in one of the outcomes, you know? Um, and that, and that maybe someone would have heard it and did know something more. Cause this is never, this case has never been really investigated as like a full, like, I mean, there have been criminal investigations, but, um, the RCMP won't even confirm that they're actively investigating right now. So there is the possibility that there are people out there who do know more, who just haven't had a forum to say so, or haven't wanted to say so. And we did hear from a few people after the show came Mm. out, but nothing on the order of solving the mystery. Nothing blew it open. It was more people who just experienced weird stuff. We found a guy who like had withdrawn money from Quadriga and had just been mailed a brick of $20,000 cash, which just showed up in his mailbox. There was more stuff like that. I mean, that's good stuff. That, that ended up in the show, right? That ended up yeah. in the show, yeah. I had been looking. I knew that that was a thing that Quadriga had done, but I hadn't actually found like a guy who'd actually gotten a brick with that much money in it. So that, that was who came out of the woodwork after we launched. So there's one person who definitively knows what happened, which you describe in the show, which, yeah. is, which is his wife. Yes. And she wouldn't talk to you. But I was also interested in how you handled, I mean, of course, it's like interesting and relevant to speculate whether he could still be alive. But also, if he's dead, you have someone who's mourning the loss of their husband who they recently married and they he died on their honeymoon. Like, it couldn't be more awful. Did it feel like his frauds were big enough that it sort of justified like we have to answer this question even if even attacking this question and trying to figure out is he dead is a kind of hurtful to her i mean it was certainly something that i felt like we had to be sensitive to that there were two scenarios and one a person that other people loved was dead unfortunately that person 
is the second biggest fraud in Canadian history and mm -hmm. stole hundreds of millions of dollars from people. And the way I looked at it is that he sort of brought this on his family when he did it. And I think he knew that if he had lived, not if he had lived, if he had faced the consequences, if he had hung around and faced the consequences for what he would have done, it would have also shattered and destroyed the lives of the people that loved him. You know, Canada's not like a huge country. You know, a lot of people lost a lot of money. A lot of people were really hurt by this. So I wanted to think about them also, you know, that they wanted answers for losing their life savings. It wasn't, it's not simply besmirching a dead person's name. It's trying to unravel a fraud that had a real impact in like thousands of people's lives. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to ever be flippant about it in that way. On the other hand, his crimes were brazen and creative and kind of just, it went beyond just ripping people off. He made fake user accounts with names like R2D2 and C3PO and used them to steal people's money. And then bet with it himself. Yes. So I think the show has a tone that can be like fun and that's discordant with a dead person. But a lot of that comes from telling the real story of like a, a brazen criminal, you know, who he wasn't just interested in the money. I don't think, I think he was kind of interested in fraud culture and that's a dark world. You know, it's a dark world to put your family into, honestly. Like I was so obsessed with Jerry Cotton that he, he feels like a person I know. Like when mm -hmm. I talk about it, I tried to think of him sort of in his totality, which was, kind of a complicated person, but ultimately someone who I believe was like addicted to fraud and addicted to gambling. And when you really look at all these issues, you know, I'm not the only person who's like bringing heat on his wife, oh, right? Yeah. Like, I think my take is probably more even keeled and generous than you would get from most of the people who lost money. You know, those people are kind of like, let's go dig up his big grave with some shovels right now. Let's find out where his wife is. And I didn't want, like, I don't think that like vengeance should be a part of that equation for anyone. I think that the goal should be to get the facts out. The facts may exonerate his wife. And that was something I was conscious of, particularly in finishing the show, which is like, hey, I actually think if you listen to all eight episodes here, your conclusion very realistically may be, this person didn't know what her husband was up to. That doesn't mean that she shouldn't be mentioned. Was there a part of you that either identified or like even admired the cleverness with which he pulled off these frauds admire I, is like a difficult world but I, I think i do have a begrudging respect for the main character of the story and that's because i think a lot of people in crypto are full of shit but don't fully realize it they're talking to fill their own pockets but they're doing it in a way that's legal and semi-respectable they're uh -huh. shilling that they're <laughs> shills jerry wasn't really like that he was actually a thief. Like it wasn't like a hustle. It was a like outright con. He was an old school thief. He was mm -hmm. a Ponzi schemer. He stole people's money. So there's a straightforwardness to that, that I sort of can kind of begrudgingly respect. And I also just thought he was like a fascinating character. You know, he bridged all these worlds where he was involved in these 
pre-Bitcoin digital currencies that were used for Ponzi schemes and money laundering and cartels were into them. And then Bitcoin comes along and he just happens to be in like the right place at the right time. And most people in crypto would say, oh, we got to root out these bad apples, right? These kind of Wild West yahoos who were here early and make this respectable for banking. But my perspective is kind of like that is where crypto comes from. Crypto does come from like sketchy online underworlds. It, in some ways, Bitcoin is just an improvement on these centralized digital currencies like Liberty Reserve, which Jerry ran in exchange. And it also just makes sense that the early people who were who had the experience to run a Bitcoin exchange, other than someone like Gerald Cotton. So there just feels like there's like a sort of a poetic justice to those people, like being a lingering force in crypto for good or for bad. Um, and I don't think they'll ever totally go well because a lot of them just got insanely rich. I mean, that's the other deep irony of this story is that the character of the story is someone who stole hundreds of millions of dollars and would have had hundreds of millions of dollars if he had just kept holding his cryptocurrency and operating a cryptocurrency exchange. He was going to be rich anyway. He tried to shoot the moon. That's the tragedy of it. And that's, very emblematic of the characters of the people who are early in crypto. They're people who can be like, hey, dude, if you just chill out, you're going to be like a tycoon in 10 years. And they're like, cool, I'm just going to try and go a, a thousand a thousand to one or lose it all right now, you know? Well, your own kind of interest in cryptocurrency obviously was an asset in doing this story. Like you can hear it through the episodes, like being able to explain it. I want to know where that comes from. Like, why did you get into not just like following cryptocurrency, but you also have like bought and traded it. And I know that you've bought like weird alt coins. Like where did that derive from? Something wrong with my brain probably. <laughs> um, I mean, I do like weird internet frontiers. Like I was really into the Napster era. Yeah. You know, I was like a prolific song downloader and a very interesting, I was very interested in like peer to peer technology. I've been very interested in BitTorrent and in many ways, crypto just felt like the next like logical thing along that evolution that my brain would get into. And I understand that lots of people don't like it. I don't think those people are wrong. It's weird. I consider myself someone who takes cryptocurrency seriously, which is to say, I think it could destroy the world. It's very powerful stuff. Um, you mean the environmental consequences? Or are you talking about the monetary? I think more the what it means for the state, really. You know, I think that issuing money is kind of like what makes nation states and national identity. And I think that we're playing with like powerful levers. And I don't just mean cryptocurrency. I also mean central bank digital currencies. You know, El Salvador is taking Bitcoin now. I could I could go in probably hours of my opinions <laughs> and all this stuff, but all I mean to say is that I I consider myself someone who's knowledgeable about crypto and takes it seriously. Most critics of crypto don't like crypto, have never used crypto, and don't take it very seriously. Think it's a joke, a fraud, and is on the verge of collapse at all times. Yeah, well, some like journalists wouldn't even be allowed to by by depending on what kind of traditional institution they work for. Well, and that's a huge tension in crypto journalism is that, and I don't buy into it. A lot of people in crypto think, oh, everyone's just like salty because if they had just bought Bitcoin, they'd be rich. And I don't think journalists are negative about crypto because they didn't buy it or whatever. I think it represents a true opinion, but those people are just aren't very useful for learning much about crypto from. If you want to learn about crypto, you should like talk to people who are really into crypto. 
I guess I think it's important to put yourself in the like shoes of like true believers. You're not going to like learn much about religion from like completely ignoring religious people, I guess. And it really proved pretty useful in, um, in putting together this story because I had like interviews with some of these like crypto firms like Chainalysis that do blockchain analysis. And like, I, they, they can look where Bitcoin yeah. moves from one wallet to another. So very early on, I realized that I needed to tell people up front, I know a, a decent amount about blockchain analysis. You don't have to treat me like I'm seven years old here mm-hmm. because that's people's natural inclination is to start like explaining. I was like, and that is the tone of the show is explaining this to someone who does know it. But I want to know in a fairly deep way, where the hell did these coins end up? And that's a complicated web, you know, different exchanges don't like when you have your coins on an exchange and you have an account, that's not a separate wallet. All of the exchanges coins from everyone's account are all in one wallet, uh-huh. which means when coins disappear into wall into an exchange and then come out on the other side, they have effectively been run through a mixer. We no longer really know which coins are which and which are stolen coins and which are the original coins. So just being able to understand from a chain level how all that stuff worked was essential to being able to tell the story of where the money went, even though almost none of that appears in the show. Yeah. So in a way I felt like we had to investigate this case at a high level as like blockchain detectives and then write a general interest story out of that. And at times there was a tension between, you know, can we how far can we dumb this down before we're literally wrong? And the we should talk about who the we is because we haven't mentioned Lane Brown who you worked on it with. So maybe say who, who Lane is. For so people. Lane was a fellow Quadriga uh, enthusiast <laughs> <laughs> who I knew. Um, at the time we started, he was still working for New York Magazine. He had been a longtime editor there. And he eventually became my co-writer and co-producer on this. But early on, we were both, again, just spending a lot of time on the Quadriga Reddit and Telegram and talking a lot about the case. Because it was a case that really you, I did feel like I wanted to talk out with yeah. another person. Just like, you know, okay, but what if like in the hospital this had happened? You know, there were so many scenarios that a lot of the early time that Lane and I spent thinking about this were just like brainstorming what could have happened. Yeah. People talk about a conspiracy, but everything in this case was a conspiracy theory. Right. Any the, theory involved some level of conspiracy. So the official story was that this guy had died in India of natural causes, but then where was the money, right? There was no explanation that explained it all in an above board, everything is like being done properly way. So Lane came in and because I'm not a journalist, he was like actually very instrumental and in like kind of teaching me how to tell a story like this. He really kind of nailed the structure of the story. And also just thinking about like, who do we need to talk to, to get on the record facts about this? Like we had a lot of the sort of knowledge, but like, okay, this is taken from this thing that's on Reddit. Like who can we talk to? Who will say this? Who's knowledgeable? And there we really ended up gravitating towards people who had firsthand knowledge of the story. Right? Yeah. We didn't actually use most of these internet detectives because they didn't know anything that they had actually directly gotten. 
like probably the most important interview in the whole show was just a guy who Jerry had had lunch with a bunch of times at his co-working space. But that guy knew a lot of direct stuff because he had interacted one-on-one with Jerry and was himself a um, Bitcoin security expert. So it was exactly the kind of person who should have been able to catch someone like this. And put his own money into it. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Literally like got conned. By a guy, by his buddy from the co-working space. <laughs> you know, there's a whole boom in narrative podcasts right now, and you have plenty of contacts, including our own co-hosts, where you could take this to different companies and pitch it to them. You made this thing entirely independently, and I'm interested in why you chose that route. Even at the time, I was kind of like, I think you should take this somewhere. Like, someone could give you money to go do this, and you won't have to do it all yourself, but you chose this other route where it's basically just the two of you. This is probably something stubborn. So this is a different part of my brain that's <laughs> potentially broken. A lot of it's just like my my history uh, of doing projects. Like the first project that I put like a ton of work into was this musical project I was in, Francis and the Lights. And Francis and the Lights is always kind of flirting with like major label kind of thing. We were actually on a major label at one point and got dropped by it. So maybe that's one of the roots. I think it kind of pushed me towards wanting to do things independently where I had full control over them. You know, I look, I haven't, I haven't actually done something like this with like a podcast network. So it might've been fine. It might've been awesome. But at the time I was like, I don't know when this is going to come out. I don't know how many episodes it's going to be. I don't know what the story is going to be. I guess I just kind of stubborn, like it's a stubborn, like desire to have too much control probably. And I also really like, like I said, with crypto, I like to learn how to do things myself. So by not working with other people on this, like I did most of the editing for the show, I had to learn all the various tasks that went into putting a show like this out. And I already have a, you know, a, a pretty decent understanding of audio production. So that was like something I could do myself. I knew that, you know, most of the reporting I was going to probably do like over like Skype. I mean, we were however far in we were in when the pandemic started. Yeah. After that point, it wasn't like I was going to get like flown around the world to do the reporting on this anyway. And it just kind of happened that way where it was like, all right, well, let's just keep doing it like we're doing it. And then as I, I still thought during a long period while we were working on it, oh, we'll get like an episode or two done and then I can use that to sell the rest of the show to uh-huh. a network. By the time it it got close enough where I was just like, oh my God, I could just do it. I could just put this out now. And we were able to make a few deals that brought in like, you know, a modest amount of money for an exclusive windowing and um, sell some ads. You pass over two things that I want to return to. One is just a, a sideways mention of like, I already had some experience doing audio editing <laughs> and also the fact that you're in Francis and the Lights. Because I feel like, you more than any person that I know have the most kind of like multifaceted interests and secret skills that suddenly emerge. So I want to return to those things and try to figure out a little bit where they came from, because I'm personally interested in this. When you were younger, did you have this like Renaissance man uh, desire to be a person who was like dabbled in all sorts of things? Not really. I mean, I do like... I have always liked picking up skills on computers. So like, I don't know, there was a period in high school where I made like fake IDs and that caused me to learn how to use Photoshop early on. 
and I was interested in making websites and I wanted to like, this sounds totally insane to a young person now, but like it was hard to make websites. <laughs> this was about 2004, 2005 when I graduated from college and I took a course at the new school about making websites and I don't know, I like learned basic HTML. I'm still very bad at programming, I would still say. But like basically long form was one of the first websites I ever made. So I do think I kind of like to pick up these skills. And once you have them, you you it's fun to use them. And I'm privileged enough that I haven't had to like have a nine to five job this whole time where I'm like, you know, doing this only like nights and weekends. Like I don't have a budget to do the show, but I wasn't like deeply in need of full-time work while I was doing it because I have some of these other projects like long form that are ongoing that, that bring me a modest income. So in some ways, like with these independent projects, it almost like kind of works better to do a lot of them than to do one of them. It's, I don't feel like all my eggs are in one basket when I'm doing them because I've done a series of projects that have like to some degree succeeded or worked out for me. So once I kind of got into that pattern, you kind of just want to do more and more. And like, I don't think of myself as like a audio engineering master. Like the guy who mixed, uh, mixed exit scam is listening to this, probably laughing at your <laughs> insinuation that I have any audio engineering skills at all. I know enough that I can record myself. I can move stuff around on the timeline. I got really into this program Descript where you can oh, like yeah. ingest audio and look at it as text and cut and paste. It. And it's like, all that was like very influential in me being able to do the show basically with two people. We brought in one third person, uh, uh, the mixer at the end, who, mm. who mixed the episodes. But most of the work was basically just two people. You seem like a project-oriented person. Like As I understand your career, it's like you've got big projects floating around, and then some of them are hitting, and some of them are not hitting, and then the, the other ones are long-term. But I think it's always interesting, occasionally on this show over the last almost 10 years, it's like come to the surface that you're in a band, France and the Lights. And like some people will lose their minds and say like, I cannot believe that this guy is also in that band. And I think for a lot of people, they would just make that their full identity. But I'm interested in why you have that as a side project as opposed to being a music guy who's just like, I'm in a band and we're trying to make it and uh, I exist in the music industry. I think I would that would make me feel kind of desperate. Like I don't know in all of these collaborative projects or any kind of projects, I don't know how long it's going to like go on. I would not have thought that that musical project would go on for literally 20 years. It started in when when I was in college. Uh-huh. So, I don't yeah, more than 20 years probably. So now. you met Francis then or you knew him from before? I knew Francis from elementary school on wow. actually, but we uh, went to college. I mean, for the like incredibly bizarre coincidences. I used to share a apartment with Francis and Max Linsky's future wife, Meredith, when I was in college. And that was where that was basically when we started working on music. But the reason I don't make that a part of my identity, it is a part of my identity inside myself, but I don't think we even 
put out any music for the first eight or nine years we were doing it. Like uh-huh. we didn't put out music until like maybe 2007. What so were you seven. doing? Just writing? You were writing music? Francis was just playing shows. I mean, look, honestly, at the time we didn't know how to record music particularly. We had like a, like a, uh, like a mini disc four track, maybe. No, no, no. That was even before that. But like, you know, we made some like demos, you know, but like it was just a different time. Like this is before MySpace. What were we going to do with any music we had? You know, it was actually the internet coming onto the scene that kind of inspired us to kind of like make it more of like a thing that people who couldn't go to a show in New York City could experience. But for me, all of these things have like different eras. It wasn't always like a thing that, I mean, it's still not a thing that anyone recognizes, but it was really not a thing that anyone would recognize when I was in my 20s when it would have been like, fun maybe to to write you know now i'm a dad living in long island so like it's really just i mean who cares what my identity is i basically don't talk to anyone and i also don't want to put i think it puts a kind of pressure on things when you form your identity out of them because then it's something you can lose or they can get taken away from or people aren't into it anymore i mean you know the half-life of being older and in music is very like short in general. So I guess I just try to remain kind of neutral on all of these things. And if you want to check them out, I hope that they're like of high quality and that Mm -hmm. like my specific identity isn't super important to them. Francis and the lights is also just like most people just assume it's like a solo project and like, it might as well be honestly like, what I do for that is I like write songs with Francis and and we put things together. It's similar to most of these other projects. I don't necessarily think I really gravitate towards things that are like where my identity is like merged with the project. And I think that's even true, honestly, in exit scam. Like some people were like, yeah, but we want to hear like more about what you think about crypto. And I was right. like, it's not important. Don't worry about it. I mean, it's, it's I'm being contradictory because I literally did a show where I just rambled about cryptocurrency <laughs> no. for an hour. But I try to do that for like a, a limited number of people who are really interested. And I, I also like to do projects that are like, you know, you can just get into them as as a general interest audience member without really caring who I am. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have had like this proximity to mega celebrity musicians, which is also a thing that I find that you don't just talk about all the time, which a lot of people would. But I'm interested in what that proximity has told you about success. So I'll go back to my 20s, which was I got out of college. I took the class at making websites at the new school. I had a job in publishing. I was an uh, editorial assistant. I don't think I lasted a full year doing that. And uh, the publisher that I was working for, Norton, hired me to come in and and be, I've called it being a ghostwriter, but I think a rewriter would be like a more accurate title. So people who were struggling to finish their book or their book needed a rewrite, I I came in and, and started doing books, which was kind of the beginning of my time as a not not going to an office every day person. And uh-huh. I was successful early on. I think two two things I quote unquote ghost wrote, um, became New York Times bestsellers. Although, you know, it's not a very highly paid job for anyone who is out there thinking about following this path. But early on, it became clear to me that if you want to do that kind of work, you need to be quiet 
about it. You can't be like, I actually wrote that book. Right. In fact, you can't even really like talk about it in that way at like a cocktail party in New York City. It's a trust relationship. But what I've learned from it is that there's a whole world of people behind these people who are doing a lot of the work of making their art. And the people who last in that world are the people who can kind of like keep it under their hat and like know how to move in that world in a way that doesn't involve their own identity and ego very much. You have to be able to sort of just know like, well, I was instrumental to that thing, even if I didn't get a credit for it, or if I did get a credit for it, no one looks at the credits for any of this stuff. No one cares. People care about the celebrity who is at the top of the pyramid and being able to sort of sublimate your own like ego um, identification with something for the idea that it just all that matters is that it's good and that people like it and you can take a pride in it even if you're literally standing next to someone who is enjoying it and would have no idea what your connection to it is. I mean, I've spent a lot of time just like watching from the crowd because I don't really perform. I've never performed live really. I mean, I've seen things that I've made from the audience and it's uncanny. You know, it's, you hear people talking shit about it. You hear, you hear the whole, the whole spectrum of reaction. And so I think all that stuff has kind of led me to have a slightly different relationship with like ownership over like a, a creative idea. I at least aspire to not caring. I won't say that I like, totally don't care but i do think you're in a, a better position when you're not like tied one-to-one -one, your identity and the things you make yeah well now you have a thing that your name is on it and that's making me uncomfortable <laughs> honestly i won't keep making you talk about it for too much longer but uh, no i just mean like it's uncomfortable to me that like it makes me feel slightly exposed that my name like if i if I had like a literary alter ego, I would have used it uh, on this project. Um, but you can't really do that if you want to go out and promote things. And that's the great tension. You know, that's why yeah. I've been able to get away with this in music is because I have another person who is putting their name out and is out there promoting it. In right. this case, this is the first project I've kind of had to take that, that role. All right. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, we've been interviewing journalists for going on 10 years were there pitfalls that you felt like you avoided or knowledge that you had from talking to those journalists that you actually implemented now that you were doing it yourself? Definitely. I came back to actually one interview I did with Xavier Lestrade, who directed The Staircase. Uh -huh. I had an urge to keep thinking we were almost done. I remember talking to him about that. And he was like, no, no, no. You got to wait for it. You got to like wait for the story to like develop. That was tough. Like that was tough for me, honestly. Like feeling like I did something that was respectful of all of the possible outcomes. I didn't just choose the one that was suited to my own purpose. That was something I got from a number of reporters that I've interviewed on the show as kind of like letting the story guide you and not feeling like, well, I'm gonna push it to be like the angle that's most beneficial to me, you mm -hmm. know? And, and ultimately that led me to an ambiguous ending. Early on, I was like, the pinnacle achievement is to solve this case. But ultimately I felt like an ambiguous ending was the, like the most honest to what I actually experienced in reporting it. Mm -hmm. 
All right, Aaron, thank you for coming on the Long Form Podcast. Thank you. It's been, it's been a pleasure. I think I still prefer the other chair, <laughs> but it's good to have experienced it from over here. Yeah, now maybe you'll have a little more empathy for our, for our guests. Absolutely. Thanks for doing it. All right, thanks. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff, and that was the multi-talented Aaron Lammer. His other show is called Exit Scam. You can check out all eight episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts right now. Our other co-host is Max Linsky. Thanks to Max. Thanks to our editor, Jackie Sajiko. Thanks to our intern, Julianne Sato-Parker. And as always, to our sponsor, MailChimp. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.